Um, I hope you are nice and comfortable at home on your couch. Uh, no, uh, you've got some, not, maybe not popcorn, biscuit, drink, snack, something or other. Um, but you've been enjoying um, the service so far, like I have. So I have the honor of being able to do um, our first foray into the Gospel of Mark. I know after Graham's awesome introduction a couple of weeks ago, um, I have been itching to kind of just understand more about this gospel. It's, it's, it just, that, 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 the word that Graham used last time was Mark's crosshairs being on Jesus the whole time. And I feel that my prayer for us as a church is that we learn to have our crosshairs fixed on Jesus the whole time, that we learn to understand actually, you know, that the, the, the title of Christian that the, the we bear, actually, what does that mean? Who are we representing? Let's understand more of the person of Jesus Christ as we go through this gospel. So like I said, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Um, let's get stuck in. Okay, so open up your Bibles. <laughs> I'm going to try and pipe down. It's getting a bit rowdy in the Forget Me Not Club. So um, I'm going to try and pipe down, but open up your Bibles. Um, get, uh, get, get them open to Mark chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 1 to 13. So there's, there's quite a bit for us to get through today, but we're going to really enjoy it, I pray. Okay? So I'll give you a second to get there, and then I'm going to start reading away. So, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Like I said, the aim today... Uh, and throughout our journey through Mark is for us to understand more about the person of Jesus. And I've kind of touched on the, the comforts that we have right now. Um, and it's very hard. At the moment, it's very easy to be pessimistic and often very cynical about the times that we live. But what I want you to remember is how much of a privilege we have to be able to celebrate our faith even in the way that we are now compared to the early Christians that this gospel was originally addressed to. 
As Graham pointed out last time, Mark's gospel is addressed and thought to have been written to early Christian, the Christians in Rome um, around about the 50s or 60s AD. They, they would have been hearing this message, not sat in the comfort of their homes, but underground in the catacombs. Um, and not only just meeting in an uncomfortable place with the overshadow of genuine fear and concern that at any moment as they were gathering and worshiping that um, they could be, one of them could be picked up, dragged out, thrown <laughs> quite literally to the lions. Or, or alternatively, they might know Christians that have been picked up in a similar way, popped on a wooden stick and set a light to be used as a candle in a garden party, as Graham pointed out a couple of weeks ago. Now, what, on, what causes somebody to still meet and worship Christ, even when in that scenario? And I think the clue that Mark gives us is in, verse, it's in the opening verse. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we're in a church service. That's not an unusual phrase to hear, Jesus, the Son of God. And it's really easy in 2021 to kind of hear that, yeah, Jesus, the Son of God, yada, yada, yada. But wait a second. That verse was explosive when this gospel was written. Um, and I think that's where it helps. Like Graham was pointing out a couple of weeks ago, context helps us to, 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 to squeeze so much more out of Scripture when we can understand that. So that, that phrase, the Son of God, was the term that was given to Caesar in the Roman Empire. And that was how all of the inhabitants of the empire would address the Caesar of that particular time, whether it was Augustus or, in this case, Nero. And, and so, the, it, I mean, give a little bit more flavor. There's, there's quite a few public um, inscriptions that historians are able to see about how Nero would have been addressed in this time. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Nero, the good god of the inhabited world, the beginning and existence of all good things. Nero, the son of the greatest of gods. Nero, the lord of the whole world. So you can see straight away how if you're meeting up with your mates and saying somebody else is the son of God in the Roman Empire, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble, okay? But this, is, this was the mandate of those early Christians, and they were determined to carry on worshipping Jesus as the son of God, knowing the dangers that were involved. And otherwise, we wouldn't be here today if they, weren't able, if they hadn't grasped that Jesus was somebody divine. He was... He was the Son of God. He was worth worshipping. He was worth putting their lives on the line for. And like I said already, I think that's something we really, really need to grasp. Because it is so easy for us to think of Jesus as something less than he is. Um, and to focus purely on his humanity sometimes. To think of him... In their conversation, it's much easier when I'm having a conversation with my mate to say, "Yeah, Jesus, he, he taught a lot of good things." Yeah, it's much easier to have that kind of conversation and think of Jesus as the moral teacher. It's much easier to have a conversation where you are thinking of, "You know what? Jesus was a good man. He was a good example to follow." 
But that's not enough. And I mean, I, I think that within our time, we have lots of different sources of moral teaching and people giving us um, you know, uh, that we've placed in authority to tell us about how we should live our lives and what is good and what is bad. And, you know, you might turn on ITV in the morning and see Piers Morgan laying into some minister or health minister or whatever, giving us our ethical guidance as a, as a country. Or if you're a bit lazier, you might see, I say lazier, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to insult anybody, but if it's midday, you might be watching Loose Woman. Um, <laughs> and you might think, oh, uh, <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> and you might be thinking, oh, actually, no, they're the authority and the moral authority. But, and, you, and to be fair, there might be some times where Piers Morgan has something to say, and I might think, oh, actually, that's quite right. But would, would I meet with my friends um, under threat of being fed to a lion for the moral teaching of, uh, of Piers Morgan, even when he's right? W would I get set on fire for loose women? Uh, these, these are horrible examples. There are much better examples of good moral teaching. But my point is this, is that being good and being a good example or telling us what is right and wrong is not enough. It wasn't enough. These people understood Jesus as the Son of God. And I, I want to challenge you today. Do you know Jesus as the Son of God? More than just uh, a, 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 a character in a, in a story uh, or in your Bible stories, more than just, you know, a, a, a good example, a, a, bit, a bit like Gandhi, a bit like other people that we might hold up in high regard as, 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 as good moral teachers, but do you understand them as divine, as the Son of God, somebody that you would go underground for, that you would lose everything for uh, because of who he is and what he has done for you? Uh, and I pray that as we work our way through this gospel, we will understand this Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 1, it's Mark's first thing. That's the, that's the first thing he wants you to know. He's the Son of God. He's not just a good guy, a good person. He is the Son of God. He is divine. And I pray that we understand Jesus in that way. And I've kind of hinted about you know, Mark understanding Jesus as the Son of God. But straight away into verses 2 and 3, we see why he understands Jesus as the Son of God. His understanding of Jesus as the Son of God and as the Messiah is rooted in his understanding of the Old Testament and fulfillment of prophecy. And I feel that this holds another lesson in us, a lesson for us today. Because I've kind of touched on those kind of conversations that we can sometimes have, you know, one Christian to another, or we might see on YouTube, or you might talk to your friends about you know, trying to you know, find out faith together. And, and, and often, we can sometimes look at the Old Testament through our 21st century goggles and lenses and have a kind of, you know, snobbery, <laughs> really, um, and, and think, you know, that we've, we've moved past that. We've moved past, you know, the things that are mentioned there, the morality that is, that is laid out there. And um, we might have conversations and think, oh, yeah, that was a little bit awkward, you know, when God, God did that particular thing, when he sent a flood and, you know, wiped, wiped out all those unrighteous people, that was a bit awkward, or it's a little bit tricky to, you know, explain why, you know, why, um, you know, God, that God has an issue with, with, with mixed fabrics and the bit of, so otherwise, um, but hey, you know what, we don't need to worry about that because uh, Jesus is here now, so let's just close the Old Testament, move it out of the way, and just focus on 
Mark and other parts of the New Testament? The, the answer is no. Yeah? The, the answer quite clearly is no. Now, that was not the attitude that Jesus had. That was not the attitude that Mark had. Um, we, we need to understand that the Jesus that we worship today um, and the redemption that we celebrate today is rooted in the Old Testament. And it only makes sense in the context of the Old Testament. And the love that we celebrate and we enjoy um, and the mercy and the grace that we bask in when we worship today is rooted in the, in, in the facts of a God that is just and holy as revealed to us in the Old Testament. And until we grasp that, and in the new, all the way through, and until we grasp that, in reality, we can't really comprehend what Jesus has done for us. Because until we understand the value of the Old Testament, we can't understand why we should be up on that cross instead of him. And why he, why it's so beyond comprehension, the wonder of what he has done for us. We can't do that unless we understand the Old Testament. And so let's, I mean, I've mentioned a couple of uncomfortable bits. There's, there's many others, but let's grasp those and let's wrestle with those uncomfortable bits of Scripture and, understand, and seek to understand them. And just like Mark has done in verse 2 and 3, let's thumb through those Old Testament Scriptures and think with every single verse, how does this point to Jesus Christ? Because that, he is what the whole story is about from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to understand that and grasp that, okay? Um, and I've touched on verses 2 and 3 in terms of that, the, the, the prophecy um, that, that um, Mark pulls out regarding John the Baptist. And he, Mark is essentially telling us, you know, what time, what time it is when he relays that these verses are being fulfilled uh, from, the, from the Old Testament scriptures. And prophecy is really, really important. It's a, it's a gift that we give emphasis and we love in this church. Um, and it is really important because it is God's way of helping us to understand the times that we live in. And, and so, so often, the most important cultural questions um, of any particular time are based in and around what's going on at this particular time. And that's true of us at the moment, certainly, um, and it's been true through the centuries. And if you think, and I've asked you to plop yourself in the place of the Roman Christians, I want you to put yourself in Judea in um, AD 30, or whenever roughly it was that this was happening, and think about what would have been going through the minds of the Jewish people at this particular time. They, they are, are living, um, they, they, they have been promised that there will be a, um, a son of David on the throne forever. But they are living under Roman oppression and Roman rule. Um, they look back through their history and they see that when they are living under oppression, it is when something has gone wrong, basically, with their relationship with God. And often they will, they, they will have been looking and thinking, what's happening? Something, what is happening? Why, why is, you know, you know, from a historical point of view, the Romans have literally just walked into the temple of God and walk, into the Holy of Holies and walked straight out. 
they would have been thinking, what on earth is happening at this time? And there was a conversation, lots of different, different areas of Jewish society about actually their interpretation of what was going on. You, you had the Pharisees thinking you know, that the, the right way to respond to this was you know, a, a better, a more legalistic interpretation of Scripture and return in that way. Um, but on the other hand, you had a group of Jew, Jews called the Zealots who thought the right thing to do was to protest, it was to revolt, it was to fight against Roman rule. Uh, and all these conversations were happening within the hustle and bustle of the city of Jerusalem. But out in the wilderness, separate to that hustle and bustle and that worry and, and those conflicting conversations was John the Baptist. Um, calling people, not like the Pharisees, to, to, to try, and, try and try harder. That's, that's the way to fix things. He, he wasn't calling people to, um, to, to, to revolt. He was calling people to withdraw from the lives and the conversations that they were having to come and repent. And I think there's a really important parallel for us to draw here today. We're living in a really, really awkward time. You don't need me to tell you that, okay? And there are so many conversations happening about the pandemic and, you know, uh, is the government doing the right thing? Uh, should, should they be locking us down? Should they be opening us up? Uh, politics, you know, um, you know uh, in America, Trump this, Biden that, or whatever else. Everything is, there are so many conversations that we feel like we have to leap into and, and, you know, often like, oh, 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 what, do, what do you think, Bucky? What do you think, Claire, about this, about that, about this, about that? And we, we often feel like we have to give uh, an answer there on the spot to, to all these questions and, and, uh, and jump on a particular bandwagon, you know, like uh, the, the answer to the horrible abuse on social media is to educate people more or... Um, that it might be that you know, the government doesn't understand us, let, 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 let's find another way. Um, but um, that th th there can be a place for these conversations. And I believe in a God and in, a, uh, in a God and in the scriptures that have plenty to say about these conversations. But what I would say is that as a Christian, this conversation, these conversations should not be the most important conversations that we are having. They should not be the central conversations that we are having. You know, what 1 Corinthians 2 verses 6 to 7 says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And there is the temptation, like I've touched on, for us to get involved in the wisdom of this age and want to, 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 to appear clever. <laughs> but ultimately, the scripture, Bible tells us, Paul tells us that these rulers are coming to, another, to nothing. And earlier in the book of Corinthians, the wisdom of, when he tells us in those verses to declare God's wisdom, he makes clear that God's wisdom is Jesus Christ. That, that is what we need to be declaring. That, that is the conversation that we need to be having. I'm, I'm not proposing that, we, that the church has nothing to say about all of, the, all of the many conversations that we're having. Like I've said, we have plenty to say, but it shouldn't be the first thing. 
the first thing is pulling people towards Jesus Christ. The first thing is a message of repentance. And we need to recognize what John did 2,000 years ago, um, that the message of repentance is paramount. That is the most pressing thing that people need to know. And that people, we need to draw people to withdraw from the conversations that they are having um, that don't hold the same importance as what, as, as what eternity and what God has to say. Um, and, and that's the correct reading of our times. That's the correct interpretation of what's happening right now. Matthew 3, verses 7 to 10, gives an alternative reading um, of um, this particular part of the, of the historic timeline of Jesus. And, and this says, uh, John the Baptist here says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The, the reality is the axe is at the root of the tree. Not just when John the Baptist spoke, but now. Um, as John says, there is a coming wrath. Um, that, that there isn't a more urgent or pressing issue to be discussed today than this. And no matter what culture might say, we need to repent. We need to call our nation to repent. This is the number one item on the agenda. And we need to grasp this as Christians and not just think about it, but implement it in our lives. As, as John did. Um, he is called John the Baptist for a reason. You know, ba baptism in Jewish tradition was something reserved for Gentiles, that, that is non-Jewish people when they wanted to convert to Judaism. So for a Jew to get baptized was a, a wonderful show of repentance. Yeah? It was for a, a, a Jew to say that, God, I am as far away from you as somebody that doesn't even know you, <laughs> that doesn't even, um, that they're not a son of Abraham, that they, they don't know your law, I have been as sinful and as wrong as that. That is how far I am away from you. That's what baptism meant. And it was th that true humility that John was calling people to, a humility that led to repentance. And uh, I've read those verses in Matthew chapter 3 where um, John is rebuking the Pharisees because they were too proud to take the steps that the Jewish people were taking around them um, and, and be humble and repent in the way that John was calling people to. But, I mean, I've spoken about the humility of those Jewish people that baptized, but that doesn't touch the sides of the humility of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. But I think, just like John the Baptist, though, it's really hard to read this passage without thinking, why is Jesus getting baptized? Because ultimately, I mean, for those of us that are, that, that are familiar with the scriptures and familiar with uh, Christianity, we, all, we know that Jesus is without sin. So, and like I've tried to spend a bit of time 
about repentance and baptism are about people that are sinful, but Jesus isn't sinful. Um, and I, I mentioned that how Jewish people think they were really far from God and wanting to get closer to God. I mean, you can't get any closer to being God than being God. So um, why is Jesus getting baptized? And it was perplexing to John, and it's perplexing to us at first reading. But thankfully, um, Scripture gives us the, a, hint, a hint of the answer um, in Jesus' words later on in Matthew chapter 3, where he says, when John puts this exact question to him, in, the, in maybe slightly different words, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that term, fulfill all righteousness, sums it up neatly. <laughs> as best as we can, in that Jesus came to do what we can't. I can't fulfill all righteousness. You can't fulfill all righteousness. But he came to fulfill every requirement that, that God has on humanity to be put in right relationship with him again, to undo all of the wrongs that were, put, that, that, that were set in place in Genesis. Jesus fulfilled every single requirement uh, and we need to understand that we, we cannot do it no matter how hard we try. Um, no matter how many times I get baptized, I can't fulfill all righteousness. Um, whether I get baptized in the bath, whether I get sprinkled with a super soaker, whether I get baptized in the dirty Jordan River, or whether I get baptized in the bluest ocean, I can't fulfill all righteousness. That's why Jesus came, and he did what we couldn't. I mean, from a personal point of view, I am absolutely 100% certain that I have sinned more since I was baptized than before I was baptized. Uh, but I thank God that it's not my act that fulfills righteousness. It is his act that fulfills all righteousness. It's his perfect obedience that gives me eternal life, not mine, thankfully. So when, when God looks at the slate, he doesn't see... Bucky, the petulant, disobedient toddler, he sees Jesus Christ, his perfect son. And we, we need to bask in his perfect obedience and really understand that. Because I think if we don't understand that, we can live guilty. We can keep going on this endless hamster cycle of sinning, repenting, sinning, repenting, sinning, repenting, and thinking, oh God, I'm never going to be good enough. But the truth is um, that He's not asking us to be good enough. Jesus was good enough. So we need to feel that liberation, not to feel like we can just you know, go all over the place sinning left, right, and center, but to understand that Jesus did not come that for us to be condemned as Christians. He has come to save. And so let's live in that freedom, knowing that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. Um. And it's this perfect display of humility where you see a sinless son of God still get baptized for us. Um, that we see that Jesus highlighted for the first time so clearly as God. Um, and you know, this picture in Mark is one of the, the best demonstrations of you know, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and as I say, a clear presentation of God. And it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me that in this moment when Jesus is displaying his humanity in, in such an obvious way, um, 
you know, you've got Jesus, the 30-year-old you know, carpenter from Nazareth. There are no distinctive features there. It might as well be Barry from Bilston. You know, there are no distinctive features about this person that is being described here. Yeah? He's immersing himself in the dirty Jordan River. Not, but he does that not for himself, for us. And in that moment where you've got the God of heaven, the word via which the entire creation is created, made himself into a completely indistinctive, unspecial human being on the face of it for us. In that moment, you see God. I, I, I just think that's profound. You know? <laughs> and, and I think that you know, it foreshadows really neatly and gives the first hints to what we're going to see towards the end of Mark, what Mark spends so much of his gospel focusing on, the crucifixion. You know, in, in humility, in the depths of humility, the bits where everybody else would think, goodness me, I can't even look. That, that's when we see Jesus Christ as God. And the same in a much, much smaller way. I say much smaller way, but obviously we are not God. But in a, but in a, in a remarkable way, the same is true for us when we humble ourselves and show love for those around us. That is when God is shown to live in us. Um, remember 1 John 4 last week, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When we humble ourselves, that's when the world sees Jesus. When we serve those around us, that's when the world sees Jesus. That's when the world sees that God lives in us. Let's make God visible. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is a time where God needs to be visible. Let's make God visible by humbling ourselves and showing love to those around us. Another point that I find interesting here is that you've got the ultimate high point, like I said, God displayed you know, um, and, and, and if I'm Jesus, you know, you, you've just had a moment, you've got these crowds in Judea, and the heavens have parted, and the audible voice of God has said, you are my son. I mean, can you think of, like, a higher point that you can possibly have <laughs> in the human experience? But in that moment, Mark says he is driven immediately into confrontation with the devil. And how often is this true? That the highest of highs in the human experience are often followed by the lowest of lows. That everything can seem to be going perfect and then all of a sudden we are driven into a really difficult period or time of crisis. And, and the words in verse 12 I think are a source of great comfort to a Christian at this time in that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into that situation. We need to know that as Christians, the Holy Spirit is at the wheel in every circumstance, whether good or bad. Wilderness periods can be essential to our life. We, 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 we often don't want to hear that, <laughs> that being in the wilderness is essential to our life, but it can be true. And it's often and can be a really, really central part of God's plan for us as Christians. And I want you to understand that, that, that Jesus, we, we, we've read verses 1 to 13. Jesus hasn't started his ministry yet. 
you know, he, he's 30. He hasn't started his ministry yet. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus is fully aware of why he's here. Fully aware of why he's here. But he's lived as a, chi- as a toddler, as a child, as, as a carpenter, knowing um, his purpose, but waiting for the right time. He has, um, he has gone through that high point of being anointed with the Holy Spirit. But he couldn't do, he couldn't start his ministry. All the wonderful things that we're about to learn about reading through the Gospel of Mark, he could not do that until he had gone through this period in the wilderness of temptation. And this was God's plan. You know, this was the Holy Spirit drove him there. It doesn't say, oh, and then Jesus accidentally ended up in the wilderness after his baptism. The Holy Spirit drove him there. He was exactly where the Holy Spirit wanted him to be. And I, I know that many of us are really struggling at the moment. Yeah? And, and for many of us, this can feel like a time of wilderness. But my message to you at the moment is to hold on. The Holy Spirit is driving you. This is part of his plan for you. He will preserve you and keep you to fulfill the plans that he has for you. The, the, the wilderness is such an important image. You know? the, the, the wilderness is where Moses' ministry started with the burning bush. The wilderness, as we said, is where Jesus' ministry started. The wilderness is where Elijah's ministry restarted. And in maybe a similar way to what we're describing here, Elijah had had the highest of highs. He had embarrassed the prophets of Baal. But then he went to the lowest of lows. He, I think Graham mentioned a couple of weeks ago, he was suicidal. But in the wilderness, God tended to him. And in the wilderness, God restarted his ministry and sent him back. And I think that we need to know that in the wilderness, God is capable of starting something new, of starting a new ministry in us when we are feeling at our lowest and our most vulnerable. So as I said, my word to you is take comfort now, knowing that you are exactly where the Holy Spirit is driving you to be. As I've touched on, the imagery of the wilderness in this passage is so important. It it helps us to see another depth to Jesus' obedience. Um, This is so relevant in that term, fulfilling all righteousness. um, for, For those of you who are familiar with the passage, Paul refers to Jesus in Romans 5 as the second Adam. And I want you to think about this passage of Jesus being temptation, being tempted, sorry, in the wilderness, and how different that is to the first Adam being tempted in the wilderness. And by the first Adam representing humanity as we are before Jesus comes and redeems us. Um, Jesus is in the, the wilderness um, he's in the desert, <laughs> not the desert, but the, the, but the, the, but the wilderness. There, there, there is nothing beautiful about the wilderness, <laughs> typically. Whereas Adam and Eve are in paradise. They are in the most perfect, the, 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 the perfect part of creation, uh, the, the, as, as God has made it fresh and new. They're in a beautiful garden. They had everything that they needed they, they, they had the, the freedom to pick from the from the uh, from all the trees except for those ones that jesus that god asked them not to 
Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is hungry. You know, the other Gospels tell us that he has been fasting for 40 days, whereas Adam and Eve have four bellies. Eve had Adam when the devil approached her to, to tempt. And, I mean, God, his mercy gave humanity two chances almost. You know, Adam had the opportunity um, to be a rock for her, his wife and say, honey, you know, what he said was wrong. Put the apple back or whatever free it might be. But he failed to do that. Um, Jesus was alone. He had nobody to ask or to contend with or confide in. So Jesus, we've got these two scenarios of humanity facing temptation. And Jesus has all the odds stacked against him. Yet Jesus emerges victorious. He's a better Adam. He represents a better humanity. And he does what Adam and what we are not capable to do, capable of doing ourselves. And Jesus is not just the better Adam. He, there are other you know, pictures in Scripture as well. He, he, he's a better Israel. In, in, in Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And he calls judgment on Pharaoh for that reason, because of how he's treating God's firstborn son. Israel were God's chosen people. They were to be a royal priesthood to lead the other nations, all the nations of the earth, to God, the one true God. Um, and you can see, I mean, the, the picture of the Exodus, that um, Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And here in this passage, we see Jesus passing through the waters of baptism. And just like Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 63 verse 11, I'll read it really quickly, tells us that Israel had the Holy Spirit set on them when they passed through the Red Sea. I'll just read the verse quickly. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? So that's God putting in the midst of Israel his Holy Spirit on his son, firstborn son, Israel, in the way that we see the Holy Spirit being put on Jesus Christ. But on the other side of the water is where the two experiences differ. Because when Israel enters the wilderness, they get hungry, like humans do, but, and they rebel. They forget what Jesus has done, and they test God. But when Jesus enters the wilderness... This true son of God, he's hungry. Does he rebel? Does he test God? No. No. He, he, he rebukes the devil for invoking him to test God. He shows himself as the true son of God by being true to his father and resisting all of the devil's schemes. So can you see, and I hope you've seen through what I've said today, that the scriptures show how impossible it is for us. How, as humanity, we are given every opportunity. Um, you, know, you can see how Adam, you know, has been, Adam and Eve are given a, a leg up. They're given a head start. 
but we're given every opportunity, but by ourselves and of our own strength, we fail again and again. We needed God himself to come and resist the devil for us. And in this passage and throughout the Gospel of Mark, as we will see, we see Jesus Christ emerging victorious and winning battle after battle that we are not capable of, demonstrating to us a new type of humanity that was foreign to, to us before his arrival. And I just want to leave you with these questions, which are the questions that I opened with. Do you know Jesus? A Jesus that is so divine that, that every emperor, king, president, prime minister, MP pales into insignificance when held up against him. A Jesus who can sometimes feel a bit awkward or clumsy to follow when we're talking to our friends. Uh, makes us sometimes sit outside of the temporal conversations and the in vogue uh, discussions of our time, but enables us to see life in an eternal fashion. A Jesus that is so human that he took your place. He humbled himself in a way so beautiful and so perfect that once you've really understood and grasped this, you can't help but try and live every minute in the way that he has modeled for us. A Jesus that has been tempted in every way that we have. A Jesus that is with us in the wilderness, acting out his plan in our lives with his perfect timing in accordance with his Holy Spirit. This is the Jesus that Mark wants to tell us about. He is the Son of God, the one that we need to know and need to tell the world about. I'm just going to finish just in prayer. Lord God, help us to see you for who you really are, Lord Jesus. Help us to see beyond the... the, the the, the, the comfortable descriptions of, of who you are, but to grasp you as Son of God and to commit ourselves wholly and fully to the model of humanity that you have laid out for us and help us to be bold in, in calling the people around us, the nation around us, to repent to understand life in an eternal fashion. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and help us never to get tired of thanking you for taking our place and revealing to us your divinity. We thank you, perfect Son of God. Amen.